You're listening to TalkZone.com. Internet Talk Radio. TalkZone.com. You are entering an intriguing journey with spiritual lifestyle experts Keith and Charmé Amber, where you'll end up more at home with yourself, your behavior, and your understanding of life. Mastering Ourselves offers sound answers to life's tough questions so that life can make more sense to you and healthy directions become clearer. Keith and Charmé bring you over 80 years of seasoned experience. They pursue truth and insights that are neither left nor right, but spiritually sound and centered and can be used as a spiritual compass to help you on your path. Welcome to Mastering Ourselves. And welcome indeed. We have uh, probably our favorite author that we keep bringing back because there's so much. Uh, he's done so much research all over the world in many, many topics. And, and what's cool about him is he uh, doesn't set, set up like he's going to go research this and he wants to prove something. He does it in the reverse. He heads out and looks to find all the facts that he can, and then he looks at the facts and see what the facts tell him. See what they prove to be true. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So it's not like you live in a box and you're trying to prove that that box is right. Rather, you're going out and looking to find whatever you can find and then figure out the puzzle as you put it together, which makes it very, very interesting, and the conversations are usually quite rich. Uh, Frank Joseph has written a number of books, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and today we're going to talk some about the lost civilization of Lemuria. He, we're he's gonna, written books on Atlantis, Lemuria. He's written tons of books. He's, he's fascinating author. He's got one coming out in the spring, The Lost Civilization of America. And we're going to talk this hour and next hour a lot about the history of giants that roam the entire world, as well as prehistory of the United States. So would you please welcome to our show uh, Frank Joseph. How are you doing tonight, Frank? I'm very happy to be here, as always. It's a, it's a great pleasure, and thank you for uh, introducing me that way. Most uh, radio show talk hosts, they, they miss that point, and uh, that's that's correct. That's what I've tried to do. I don't come up with any preconceived ideas. I don't have any theories, and I collect the evidence, and then I try to interpret the evidence for the readers and say, well, this is what it most likely suggests, rather than trying to impose a theory Upon the evidence, I let the evidence create the theory. You know, the and problem the problem with the other approach is that you're you're looking uh, whatever you find, you fit into this box that you're in. Right, and, and I, I think that uh, you're not uh, being uh, that that honest with the readers by taking that approach. And I, I like to make it possible for the readers to actually make up their own minds. I do have to give them something to hang their head on, as it were. <laughs> but uh, I like to think that people should uh, really think for themselves and make a conclusion from the evidence. I mean, I, I could be completely wrong with my conclusions. I, I fully admit that, but um, the evidence is the main thing. And, and I really appreciate the, you bringing that out. Like I say, most uh, radio show folks, they, they seem to miss that point. So... Little do most of us know that there are stacks and stacks and stacks of ancient history before the American Indians, before the Caucasians in the United States and North America. You want to give us a little idea of what that's like? Well, the only thing I can tell you in, in that regard is 
Um, when I went to school back in the 1950s, I was told that American history didn't begin until 1492 when Columbus discovered America. <laughs> Before that, no land. It was just ocean, right? <laughs> well, they just, there were a few thousand Indians of no significance. And uh, that's all there was to I'm it. I'm sure they would appreciate that view. So, <laughs> for, 1492, when Columbus was singing the Native American blues. <laughs> and I, I found out, and I, I more or less believed that for a better part of my life, until um, I began looking at some of these public parks. Uh, I'm from Chicago originally, and in some of the uh, areas of the Midwest, there are these public parks that have Indian mounds. Mm-hmm. So-called Indian mounds. Yep. And uh, I wasn't particularly interested in them at first, but I took a slight interest in them and discovered that they're not Indian mounds. <laughs> that they were, some of them are, uh, but a great deal of them are made by peoples that predated Native American, so-called Native American Indians or tribal peoples in the specific area. Right. These so-called mounds are not just heaps of earth, but incredible con- pieces of construction involving uh, not just dirt. Or, or soil, but uh, clays and gravels and uh, charcoal, all associated in a, a tremendous construction technique. I mean, after all, if it was just a heap of earth, it would have blown away after a, a couple dozen years. But these so-called mounds, some of them are thousands of years old and have kept their shape throughout uh, centuries and actually millennia. The reason they do that is because they are involved uh, their construction techniques were highly advanced for their time even for our time what are we going to create that's going to be around 4,000 years from now probably not very much but these structures some of them like the great serpent mound in ohio where it was made uh, 2,000 years before christ and yet that serpent mound still exists and it represents it's 1,275 feet long and it represents a uh, tremendous feat of uh architectural surveying, a perfect spiral, perfectly surveyed spiral, about 25 feet across, uh, turns into a great snake with seven humps, and its jaws open up, and from its jaws emerge this great egg. Now this huge, beautifully surveyed mound, which was made uh, 2,000 years before Christ, uh, was also perfectly aligned to various celestial phenomena, the appearance of the Pleiades, which is interesting because the seven stars in that constellation and the seven humps on the Great Serpent Mound and a number of other celestial phenomena, mostly sunrise on the vernal equinox, in other words, the first day of spring in the year 2000. All this represents a very high level of mathematics and construction techniques that uh, predated Native Americans in that area. So where, where is this? It's in a place called Locust Grove. The Great Serpent Mound is uh, located about, it must be about 35 or 40 miles outside of Columbus, uh, east okay. of Columbus. Okay. And uh, now this is this is a thing. Uh, a well-educated person like yourself, a well-rounded person like yourself, uh, is not familiar with the Great Serpent Mound. It's as though this information has been deliberately yes. uh, concealed, uh, even from uh, well-educated, uh, informed people. And this is part of our prehistory, an important part, a very important part of our prehistory. And I found out why the uh, leaders of academic, uh, the academic world don't want us to know about these things. Why is because that? Because here we have, in the Great Serpent Mound alone, and there are hundreds of other artifacts, 
sites like this, but in the Great Serpent Mound, someone obviously had great mastery of astronomy and surveying techniques and uh, building something that will defy the millennia. They and want this to does pretend. not fit in the, into the paradigm of uh, Native Americans who uh, just were following uh, migrating buffalo herds. Yeah. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber. Our guest today is Frank Joseph, who's written, among other things, The Ark of the Covenant, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, and Upcoming Lost Civilizations of America. So do they want to pretend like that we're the first great civilization? Is that the problem? Well, I think what they want to tell is that uh, the, the textbooks which they have written they want to continue to release virtually unedited so they can sell them to their students. And then when someone comes along and says, oh, professor, this great serpent mound is not in your book. How do you explain this? Oh, well, that's just something the Indians knocked out a couple hundred years ago. But then if the student did any little further research, they'd find out that the latest uh, archaeoastronomers were able to determine uh, only about uh, four or five years ago that the alignment of the great serpent mound uh, to the vernal equinox was perfectly done, was aligned, in other words, 2,000 years before Christ. So that object, that what they call a geoglyph, is 4,000 years old. And the problem with that is, of course, Native Americans weren't even in the Ohio Valley, at significant numbers of them, to, create it, to have created such a thing right. so long ago. So it creates a, uh, a real problem. Then people start thinking like, wow, what other parts of the world does this design look like? Aha, here we are in ancient Egypt, and they had a symbol for Kenneth, K-N-E-P-H, which was the exact same symbol. In other words, a spiral out of which a serpent amounts with seven, uh, arises with seven humps, opens its jaws, and the cosmic egg comes out of its mouth. Here we find the exact same thing in the Ohio Valley. The same thing is, the same design is also found in ancient India. It is the symbol of Kundalini Yoga in which the uh, seven humps represent the seven major chakras, and the egg represents enlightenment. The serpent represents the kundalini serpent, or the energy serpent, uh, coiling in the base of the spine. Here we find the exact same thing in the Ohio Valley. These are very uh, upsetting questions to uh, mainstream uh, scholars. They don't like to consider these things, and that's why it's up to uh, mavericks like myself to bring this information out. And yet the Great Serpent Mound is a public park. Anybody can go and visit it. But I didn't even know it existed until about 20 or so years ago. I considered myself a fairly well-educated person, yet I was completely ignorant of it. And there are just hundreds of, of sites like this throughout North America that reflect these high civilizations that have risen and fallen, some of them with, many of them with contacts overseas that we have uh, been allowed to learn nothing about, absolutely nothing. Say, say, Frank, I, I think you're missing passion. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we love it, Frank. It's, it's just exactly what we want because, you know, if you're going to follow somebody, if they're alive in their field, that's, that's who's got the bee. That's the who's, spark. Yeah, that's yeah. who's got something, a hold of something, and you got a hold of something here. Well, I'm not the only one. There are other investigators. Uh, my only job is to make this information accessible to average people like ourselves who heard nothing about it. I'm not an expert in any of these things. I'm not a university-trained archaeologist or anything, but I, I am a reporter, and that really is my job, Is I figure, is to make this information 
uh, available to the, the broad masses of our people, as, as much yeah. of our people as we can, because it's their heritage which has been deprived from them. You're right. You know, when I see these ancient places, I wonder if they're a tomb or, you know, there's a lot of ancient thought of these things are affixed to, like, the, the vernal equinox or Pleiades or Orion, uh, th- that kind of thing. If that somehow, uh, there was a time when they were trying to stabilize the Earth's uh, rotation around the sun in a fixed place that was just right, and these pyramids and these sacred sites, Machu Picchu, and uh, you know, they are lined up with these stars, North Star, I wonder if they're lined up for some reason exactly like that, or, or this is simply a spiritual ceremonial place. No, I think you have put your finger on the most important aspect of all of this. You've really cut to the, the quick of this. The idea of aligning these sites around the world with various celestial phenomena has been explained by... Uh, I, I think there's a lot of professionals, archaeoastronomers, who uh, have addressed themselves to this question, but it has not been discussed in the public, and you have, have really gotten right to it. And that is, life on Earth is uh, very chaotic, especially life with other human beings. There are <laughs> wars, there are upheavals, all kinds of disappointments. There are geologic upheavals on Earth. It's living on the face of the Earth uh, there's constant struggle. It's not regularity. However, if you look up to the heavens, there is regularity. Yes. The stars, the planets, the sun and the moon, they are in fixed orbits. They have uh, regularity associated yes. with their movements. And so the ancient religion, if you can call it a religion, basically was this, to align places like the Great Serpent Mound, with these celestial phenomena to, as it were, call down the order in the heavens and to have something of the order of the heavens transform itself, at least to the society that's aware of it on Earth. That's especially true of the Anasazi. we, we got to take a break. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts. Today we have Frank Joseph joining us for both hours. He's written, among other books, The Last Civilization of Lemuria, and we'll be right back. And welcome back to the <laughs> welcome back to the lost civilization of Lemuria. There you Talk go. Talk about lost. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guest today is Frank Joseph, who has a beaner full of fantastic facts. So we cut you off there, Frank. Do you want to continue where you were? Well, I just agreed with Keith. I think that he was absolutely right that the orientation of places like the Great Serpent Mound, and there are many around the world, all throughout the United States, especially in a place like Chaco Canyon, where the Anasazi set up their great civilization, that these orientations were to bring the orderliness of the heavens down to the chaos on Earth. And uh, so they wanted to be to create a kind of a, a cosmic order, as it were, and that was the foundation for uh, some of these ancient societies. You know, I want to interrupt you here. Oh, go right ahead, please. If I could, you know, part of our purpose on our show is to help people to understand that there's order behind the chaos in their lives. And, you know, Keith and I have a particular understanding of how 
life's lessons work so that we actually do understand the order behind the chaos. And out in the heavens is so utterly brilliant and intelligence off the chart of anything we know that they're capable of producing chaos from a place of calm and centered and clear. And it's really, really quite amazing. So there's a purpose for the chaos. There's utterly a purpose for every ounce of chaos if you know how to look and how to read the signs. Well, I, I would subscribe to that idea. I, I think so. Chaos is necessary to break down old forms so that new <laughs> yes. forms can emerge. Yeah. In fact, when people are the most broken down is when they relook at those foundational beliefs and go, hmm, because they're so broken down, they can't hold on to them anymore, and they rethink them. Something's got to change. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we don't do that willingly when we're in a comfort zone. No, of course not. You, you know, um, you mentioned different materials inside, like the serpent mound, like charcoal. I don't know if copper was there, gravel. No, no, not copper. Okay, well, what was in there, and what do you suppose was the meaning of it? Was it an electrical conductor? No, I don't think it was anything quite like that. Uh, when archaeologists, quite a few years ago, they did a section trench through the Great Serpent Mound. They actually performed several. And uh, they dug straight down into the Great Serpent Mound, into the head of the mound, uh, hoping to find evidence of a burial of some kind. No evidence of any human burial at the Great Serpent Mound has ever been found. Um, and the section trenches were... Uh, later repaired, and so if, when you go visit it today, you won't see any any damage done. Right. To it. Yeah. But the section trenches were uh, revealed very interesting um, things. They revealed uh, various levels of charcoal, clay, certain types of gravel that have been carried very far away, mm -hmm. uh, rocks, and so on. And they were all arranged in interlocking levels. And at one time, it was thought, well, maybe it's all symbolic or something, but the the Great Serpent Mound is so huge, like I said, it's over 1,200 feet long, it seems unusual that it would be all made of symbolic material. Well, let me ask this. Was it one like one layer of charcoal, one layer of clay, one layer of gravel, one layer of rock, something like that? No, not quite that orderly. Uh, there were sections that were uh, interlocking and interlinked, so it wasn't anything that was that um, linear. Okay. And it yes. was determined in the laboratories that the reason why this was done was because, as it turns out, that these materials, these simple materials, um, form an incredibly powerful matrix and are able to resist erosional changes phenomenally and that it would take uh, a very long time to figure something like this out. It would take some kind of experimentation that was unrealized, actually, even in modern construction techniques, that things like gravel and certain clays and so on, create this very powerful bond. So, so it's, it makes it resilient. Oh, incredibly resilient. I mean, this the Great Serpent Mound has uh, stood the test of time for 4,000 years. And when you go to look at it, it just looks as though it's heaped up earth. Well, the earth is just the, the coating or the covering of it. If you were to take the earth away from it, you would find this first to be a, like a clay sheath. And then in the clay sheath, then you'd see these interlocking levels yep. of of, cl of uh, clays and stones and gravels and so on and uh, burnt wood, charcoal, and that sort of thing. And it's, a, it's remarkable that these simple uh, primitive um, techniques were extremely and are extremely successful. Right. I got you. 
Okay, so it refers to a people that were obviously way beyond what Native Americans were doing at that time. Yes, sure. well, there's no question in our mind that there have been brighter folks on the planet before, but I bet there's no question in your mind either. We need to take a break, though. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmé Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts, helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Civilization of Lemuria and The Ark of the Covenant, and we have more after the break. And welcome back. Thank you very much for staying with us. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guest today is Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. Frank, don't you believe that Earth has made herself available to a vast number of civilizations that start out young and then mature, and many of them have made it into a maturity far beyond what we know today. And this is like a cyclical thing that has happened many times over the eons. Well, yes, uh, it's a, an old theory, actually. Uh, goes back with the idea that uh, civilization is comparable to a human being, uh, both human beings and civilizations are born. They go through periods of youth, maturity, and uh, then they decline and go into old age and pass away. And that's because civilizations are organic um, organisms, beings, just as human beings are. So there are civilizations that have reached levels of maturity beyond our own. There's no doubt about that, especially in terms of uh, not technology so much, although there have been some technological advances that we haven't mastered yet. That's not the important thing, that there have been societies that have been far more advanced than we are in terms of the spirituality, and they've been far more successful than our civilization in terms of the happiness that's been afforded their inhabitants over long periods of time. There have been other societies that have not had the kind of internal discord that, that, our ha- that ours has and our, we are suffering from now, the incredible uh, crime waves and uh, degeneracy that uh, is plaguing our Western civilization uh, never never reached the the epic levels uh, that it has uh, in, yeah, in other societies. We have an epic battle on our hands right now, that is for sure. In, in a number of ways. <clears throat> you know, I wanted to take a part like making this uh, serpent mound and intuitive knowing versus intellectual knowing. And, you know, like you get a master cook and he's making this inspired stew for this inspired group of people and, he, and, and he's inspired to do it just right. It's going to be a beautiful event for these people. And he's got it pretty well done according to the old recipe. And yet he, he tastes it, he senses it, and he goes, no, 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 no. And they got this big, huge pot. We need we need a little, uh, a pinch or two more rosemary. And then he goes, tastes it, senses it. We need another three or four dashes of sea salt. Then he senses it more and he goes, because he's trying to get the perfect taste and the perfect nutrition blended. He's a master cook. So this is a lot intuitive. And he sort of senses it, tastes it, and goes, it needs a, a couple of lemon peels. And then, you know, got it just right, and people eat it, and, and they can feel the, the the love, the rightness, the mm-hmm. empowerment in their body. Mm-hmm. And, and when you spoke about the serpent and the uh, the, the minerals and, and uh, substance they used to make it, 
and they got it from great distance, some of it, it's, I got the sense that they were using this intuitive power of knowing. And intellectual knowing is nice, but intuitive knowing is you just, uh, you know, for instance, like this cook or Charmaine and I were having bad interference when we were first starting our studio here in our radio shows. Just bad interference, unusual exhaustion. And so we, we kept praying and thinking and sensing what to do. Finally, I got these big, huge, needle-like rocks. I put them in the ground. I took a big crane and brought them here. Put uh, crystal, big, huge crystal um, quartz, uh, quartz points on top of them. I, I got four of them. And then the radio interference and static and unusual exhaustion left because huh. that took care of it. Huh. Also, I, you know, I've seen people, I've done it myself, you're just going out in, you know, like a forest, jungle, or whatever. You, you're not familiar with it or anything. And a plant calls you to eat its fruit. Mm-hmm. One time I was on my fifth day of a fast. And we're uh, driving along the coast, Big Sur there. And we stop at a place to get gas. And this big, huge, well, it was large, cactus... You know, it just pulls me over there. Just It's like it's asking me, and, you know, it just draws me over to it. And it had this beautiful yellow nectar with little black dots in it. And I just took handfuls of it and started eating. And, frankly, I remember thinking right then, I don't, don't remember any other time where this has happened. I've never tasted anything better than this. It was like uh-huh. food from the gods. Uh-huh. But, you know, how would I know? I don't know this kind of cactus or anything. <laughs> so so life talks to us intuitively mm-hmm. if if we will listen. And I suspect that some of these uh, alignments, it's like you're making it. You know, I made a pyramid once, too, and it's like different things tell you, no, 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 you don't have a right oh, there. That's just right. Do that. Mm-hmm. And if you can follow that, it can lead you to extraordinary accomplishments on a new technology. And also I want to say a, a great Tibetan author, Lobsang Rampa, mm-hmm. one of his stories, you've read him, haven't you? Yes, I have. One of his stories was he was guided to go into this big, huge, hidden cavern, way lost in the Tibetan mountains, and uh, there was a huge cavern full of the old technology from a old world that had come and gone. And we have a whole different kind of technology that we're using now. Uh, you know, two different worlds. Anyhow. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right, correct in this, that there's a big difference between technical know-how and absolute inspiration. And right. It, it, when, when we talk about something that's really outstanding, we say it's inspired, whether it's a work of art or, uh, like I said, a, a food or. And I think that that's a very interesting story. Here, you're fasting. In other words, you're purifying yourself, and it's like your instinct has taken over. There are other ways of knowing than just with the head. I think just rather than we rely way too much exclusively on the rational as our rational aspect. But we have other potential of knowing, and that's what uh, was the basis of uh, the Gnostics. Uh, their word uh, for Gnostic was from gnosis, or instant knowing, 
Inter- they figured, they yeah. felt they didn't really need a priesthood or an organized religion or church or anything, that you could just know God. Beautiful. And that's what really, I think, is, yeah. is what you're talking about. And no doubt, some of these ancients were operating out of something other than just the rational aspect of their uh, being. That's right. That they were also inspired, and they, they, there's no doubt that they were trying to access uh, other parts of their their psyche, and and they tried to apply that to uh, to society. Now, uh, now l- let me ask you, Frank, have you, in your work, sleuthing out information and 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 archaeological sites and connections? Have you noticed an intuitive or special guidance that would come from time to time? Absolutely, all the time, constantly. Um, there are so many examples, I can't even think of one. I mean, there are literally hundreds where, for example, I'd be stymied trying to figure some particular aspect of this culture out. And... Um, the answer would would just literally appear out of nowhere. I mean, it would a, a book would just fall out of a shelf. That sort of that has happened, yep. by the way. Yeah. Things like that. Oh, I love I hearing that. that. But it, it, that's actually what I'm telling you is is extremely common. Yes. And that when people are passionately involved in anything, no matter what it is, whether it's uh, putting together your radio show or me writing a book, or it makes no difference if you're passionately engaged in it. It's amazing the the helping hands that appear everywhere, and the the, the proof of that is is just to be engaged in something, and you'll see that it, it happens, it right. works. You're right. And if you're doing it just for profit, well, it may or may not happen, or probably won't happen that That's much, right. or may not happen at all. <laughs> you, you know, that old it, money is God is a it, problem. It has a lot to do with intention and commitment, and the more you're uh, lit up with that. Yes. The more yeah. you find what that's looking for, and it finds you. It's what Joseph Campbell referred to as following your bliss. And whatever that is that really interests you, that really engages you, and it, with everyone it's different. And whatever it is, if you follow it and you're really intensely interested in it, you want to learn yeah. more about yeah. it, you will learn. You may not learn everything about it because... To learn everything about anything, you have to be from you have to be just about a god to do that. Right. But you'll learn a lot more, and things will will open up to you. It's it's incredible. I, in every book that I have written, that I've, I've really put my uh, heart and soul into, and I hope yep. I've done that with everything. Yeah. Uh, the the magic uh, just a- appears. That's it's, right. Uh, incredible. This sounds like Campbell's soup for the soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts. Our guest today, Frank Joseph, uh, who's written Ark of the Covenant, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, many other books, and uh, next spring, The Lost Civilization of America. So. We wanted to read just a segment out of your book. What is it? Lost Lemuria? What is it? Yes. The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And I'm probably going to cream these names. But, you know, this is, this is out of Frank Joseph's book, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And we would like the audience just to listen to, and these are facts. You can go, you can go touch these. You can look at them. The amazing organization of a former civilization, worldwide civilization, and how exact their connection was and their science was. So this is on page 313. 
While Yona Goonies underwater site is not unlike similar rock-hewn castles and tombs of Okinawa, it also bears a striking resemblance to the ceremonial centers on the opposite side of the Pacific Ocean along the shores of South America. Just south of Lima stand the, giant, the gaunt ruins of Pachacamac. Uh, thank you. The religious capital of pre-conquest Peru and the seat of its most revered oracle. Built centuries before the rise of the Inca, it looms in broad tiers on gigantic steps leading to spacious plazas. At first glance, it seems as though Yonaguni's monument has been transported from the bottom of the sea near Iseka Point to dry land on the Peruvian coast. Another South American lookalike towers 100 feet near the coast outside the city uh, Trujillo. Trujillo. That's right, Trujillo. Uh, aptly named the Temple of the Sun, its east-west uh, solar alignment is identical to the sunken monu- monument's orientation. The pre-Inca pyramid is an irregularly stepped platform of unfired adobe bricks built by people uh, remembered as the Moshi. In addition to the physical appearance and alignment it shares with Yonaguni's monument, the Temple of the Sun is 756 feet long. This measurement is extremely revealing because it is virtually the same length as the Yonaguni monument. Its base dimensions are 758 feet east to west, 481 feet north to south. Remarkably, these are the the same original uh, measurements of Egypt's Great Pyramid, 750 feet uh, 758 feet across at the base, 481 feet tall. 758 feet is also the diameter of the Egyptian aurora or sides of the innermost sacred citadel of Atlantis as, Plate, as described by Plato in his dialogue Critias. Crit- is that how you say it? Critias, uh-huh. Most pertinent to comparisons with Yonaguni Monument, a crystalline granite rock sitting in the Nile River just above the first uh, cataract of the uh, 481 feet wide. On it was built a remote place. So that's the same 4081 as Yamaguchi (laughs) and the pyramid. Yep. The Temple of, and how do you say that one? You got me. It's up to you. (laughs) From there, you're on your own. (laughs) The Temple of Paalek, better known by its Greek name Philae. Although its earliest known buildings only go back to the 4th century B.C., they were erected upon much older structures of undetermined age, which give rise to the site's characterization by local residents as the island in the time of Ra. So, is this like a big, huge, square rock with those exact dimensions right in the middle of the Nile, or what is that, Frank? Yes, that's correct. That's just amazing. It's a natural rock that has been terraformed to the exact same size 
as the rock which is in the Pacific uh, south of Japan, which was also terraformed to the same size. So here you have these different sites around the world in Egypt, you have at the Great Pyramid, you have the place since the time of Ra in Philae in the south. And Peru have, too, huh? And in Peru, and you have these same dimensions. Not only that, but a number of these sites, of course, are on the same former line, which was the uh, the the uh, Tropic of Capricorn. When the uh, there's so much in that book to remember, I know it, it's difficult That's right. to, to, to put it all. But I think the most astounding thing that I discovered when I was putting that book together is that a number of these very important and very old sites, including Yonaguni, are all on the former Tropic of Capricorn. In other words, they're all oriented to the same line that goes around the Earth, whether it's in China. You had a place in China which was considered one of the oldest places where civilization began in China. Then you have Lothal in India. Goes all the way through the Bahamas is a place called Andros Island. So we have all around the world. So we we actually have global communities before us. I mean, we think we're a big deal that we're global now, but this has happened long time before. There seems to be no doubt about that, and that the the fingerprint of this society was left in these surviving buildings, which are found in ruinous condition, but their foundations still exist. Take a break. Uh, in fact, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves. Our guest today, Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. So, Frank, what do you make of, and these are out of your books too, ancient India's Indus Valley and Easter Island must be like... 13, I don't know how many thousands of miles away from each well, other. Well, they're on the exact opposite sides of the planet from each other. Oh, well, that makes it clear. Take <laughs> <laughs> it farther away from that and still be on the Earth. Okay. So we have in those two ancient, ancient civilizations, 13,000 miles apart, yeah, right, 174 identical glyphs in scripts. Now, what would that mean to you? Well, there's no doubt that these, well, you can conclude One of two things. You can conclude either that one civilization, either from Easter Island, sailed all the way around the world to the other side of the world, to India, in the Lothal, uh, to Lothal and Harappa, Lanjadaro. Those are all parts of the Indus Valley civilization. Or that people from the Indus Valley civilization sailed, for some reason, all the way around the world to Little Easter Island. Neither of those scenarios makes much sense. No. It would appear that both the people on Easter Island and the founders of the Indus Valley Civilization both received a form of writing from some outside source that was common to them both. And as as an indication that that is correct is that both the uh, people of Easter Island and the people that lived in the Indus Valley both had traditions of a great flood that destroyed a former high level of civilization that no longer exists and that the survivors of this uh, inundated civilization uh, went to both parts of the world and brought some of their culture. Now, this, is, of course, is an extremely radical and heretical point of view that is not at all accepted by mainstream uh, archaeology or history, and yet uh, it's the only possible uh, conclusion that you can draw from this. The archaeologists will tell you that, oh, really, uh, there's no uh, comparison between uh, Easter Island script 
and this is a group that's found in the Indus Valley. Other archaeologists will say, well, yes, they do look very similar, but it's just uh, by chance. It's just an accident yeah. that happened. So these are their traditional glyphs and scripts, and there's 174 characters that are identical. And they're not found anywhere else in the world. That's the interesting <laughs> thing. They're not found anyplace else. And they're exactly a half a world apart from each other. Yes, they are. Yeah. Wow, that sounds very orderly to me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what this indicates is that uh, we were talking earlier about uh, these various places around the world that uh, have 750 feet as their common uh, denominator, yep. uh, as an indication of a global society. So, too, uh, here you have two vastly removed parts of the world from each other that have uh, fundamentally exactly the same script. Uh, this is also an indication of a global society that, uh, of course, no longer exists, but right. left some uh, record. There was a very brilliant uh, man... Uh, a Hungarian by the name of De Hevesy, who back uh, in the 1920s uh, was a maverick, and uh, he was a well, he was a trained uh, uh, linguist, though, and he came out with a paper that was published in the Anthropologist, saying that there's no doubt that there is a real organic, fundamental connection between these two scripts. One is called the Indus Valley script, and the other one, the Easter Island script, is referred to as Rongo Rongo. That's mm-hmm. uh, uh, Polynesian word, which means uh, sound, actually, just wow. something to be recited. Something real quick to put on top of that. In your book, it says the Egyptian sun god is called Ra, R-A, and the Easter Island god is Re, R-E. That's pretty close. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, the word Ra, or the name Ra, is used Frank. all through Polynesian as many Frank, times Frank. associated Frank. with a sun god. We're, we're out of time. Okay. We're out of time this round. Frank's going to come back next hour so we get to do more. Uh, the Lost Civilization of Lemuria, Ark of the Covenant, many other books. Frank Joseph, upcoming in the spring, Lost Civilization of America. Thanks for joining us, and we'll hear from you in a few minutes.